Have you had it yet? One of the symptoms of this virus, which is the talk of the town and everybody that you seem to meet, is that if you get it, you can lose your sense of smell and lose your sense of taste. And I guess if that happened to you or to me, what we eat and how we eat and taste what we eat and drink would become a very different experience, wouldn't it, from how it used to be for us. This happened a couple of weeks ago to our eldest son, who was away at university. He began to feel unwell and experience some of the symptoms of this virus. And he lost both his sense of smell and taste over the course of a few days. And he said he couldn't tell the difference between drinking a cup of tea and drinking a glass of water, except for the fact that the tea was hot. And if somebody said to him, taste this food, it's really great, he wouldn't really be able to do it. Although I'm not sure that university hall food tends to win many great taste awards anyway. But if you or I were to lose one of those senses, we'd probably think back to, you know, how things used to be for us. And we might long to go for a walk in the morning and smell the flowers, smell the blossom, walk past the cafe and smell the coffee and the bread freshly cooked. You wouldn't want to rely on others, would you? You'd want to have your own senses and taste these things for yourselves. Well, in this psalm, Psalm 34, we see a whole range of emotions and actions expressed. We see praise to God. We see blessings explained. We see a deliverance from trouble. We see enemies who oppress. And we see at the end of the psalm, the promised deliverance of God for his people. It's a psalm in which we're reminded that we must and we should give glory and praise to God. And it's a psalm in which we're reminded of the importance of teaching God's word to each other and to our children. And the one verse within this psalm that you might already know and be familiar with is Psalm 34 and verse 8, which says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. And so that's where our introduction came from. So we're going to split our time this morning into three. Firstly, we're going to look at the goodness of God and how David praises God and calls upon these attributes of God's goodness in praise and how he points others to God. Secondly, we're going to see some aspects of living for God. And thirdly, we're going to see looking forward with God as we put all this into practice and see where our life's ultimate destiny is is to be. So firstly then, the goodness of God in verses 1 to 10. The introduction to this psalm, if you have it in your Bible, would say something like, a psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. So straight away this tells us who wrote the psalm, and when they wrote it, and the circumstances in which they wrote it. And if you were to look back in 1 Samuel and chapter 21, you could read about how David was forced to flee his country because King Saul was after him. You remember that? And he ended up in the land of Gath. Remember Goliath of Gath? And the people there had discovered who he was. And he'd been brought before this king, Abimelech. And the people had said, isn't this David? The one who'd slain his tens of thousands while Saul had only slain his thousands. Remember how that really, really wound Saul up 
and David was afraid for his life. And so, how did he get out of the situation? Well, he played what you might call a wartime spy blinder trick to avoid capture. David pretended to be mad. He let his hair grow wild, he scratched at the door of the gate, and he hoped by doing these things that he'd convince the Philistines that he was absolutely no threat at all. And it worked. David escaped to a place called the Cave of Adullam, where some other friends joined him, and then he wrote this psalm. Well, I don't know what you think of what David did there. In football, one of the hot topics today in the game is simulation. Players pretending to be injured when they're not, pretending to be fouled when they've not been touched, screaming on the floor in agony when the defender is nowhere near them. Well, David was in fear of his life, so let's leave this one between him and the Lord. But we can be thankful that we have the psalm that he wrote. It's an alphabetical psalm, so every verse begins with its letter in order of the Hebrew alphabet. You won't see that, of course, in your Bible. But running through it, we have this theme of how good God is and has been and will be to his people and how he helps us in our living today. And so David starts by praising God. That's a great place to start, isn't it? And look at what David says he'll do in these first two verses. He says that he'll praise God constantly. He says in verse one, I will bless the Lord at all times and upon all occasions. He's going to make time for it. He's going to purpose to do it. He's going to do it whenever he can. And Christian, if you and I hope to spend our eternity in praise of God, then shouldn't we want to be doing it now as well? So David says he'll praise God constantly, but he also goes on to say he'll praise God openly. His praise will continually be in my mouth, he says. He's not going to hide his praise for his God, and he wants to encourage others to do the same. And he says he'll praise God passionately, with great passion. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord, he says. This is going to be the most important thing to me. This is my soul's delight. I'm not going to boast in anything else. I'm going to boast and praise my God. Praising God is a great response, isn't it, to who he is and to what he's done for us. It's right to do it. And notice David doesn't want to be doing this on his own. Maybe I wonder if you're tired of lockdown church in your living room, if it feels like you're on your own. And David wants others to join with him in praising God. And he expects that they will. It should be contagious. It should be catching. We know all about that today, don't we? But he says in verse two, the humble will hear of it and they will be glad. How many of you have downloaded the NHS app for your phone for this COVID? I wonder if you could imagine if there could have been a track and trace app for praising God and worshipping him. You've been in contact, says the alert, with someone who's been worshipping and praising God. Check yourself. See what mark it has left upon you. What impression it has left upon you. 
Was it catchy? Was it contagious, this praise of God? And David believes that his praising will affect others and will encourage others. Do we believe that? Do we believe that about how we worship God, that it will have an effect on others, that others will see, others will want to come and know and trust this God for themselves? And it's interesting, isn't it, that he calls them in verse two, the humble. He says the humble shall hear of it and be glad. It's been said, hasn't it, that those who trust the most in God are those who have the least thought and confidence in themselves, more of Christ and less of me. Yet not I, but through Christ in me, we just sang a few minutes earlier. And that's the sentiment here. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light and my strength. Jesus, Jesus, all sufficient, we could go on. And David encourages us in the praise of our God. And how else are we encouraged to praise God? Well, in verse three, David encourages us with great thoughts about God. Magnify, he says, the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Well, of course, we can't make God any greater than he already is, can we? But we should praise him for who he is. And let's do that together, says David. And that's why it would be so good to do that together physically when we can next do that, whether it's this afternoon or whether it's in the, the weeks to come. We want to exalt his name together. Magnify the Lord with me, says David. And then he goes on to give us some reasons to thank God from verse four. Why should we thank God for all of these different aspects of his goodness and his being? Well, he says in verse four, because he will hear our prayers, because he will hear our prayers. David knows, doesn't he, that he sits before a prayer hearing God. I sought the Lord, said David, and he heard me in all my fears. When we're in trouble, one of the most vital things that we can know is where we must go and where we can go to get help. I'm sure all of us know, don't we, what it's like to be fearful, to be afraid, or to have something so heavy on our hearts that it feels like a crushing weight. Where do you turn? Where do you go for your help? Well, David knew where he must turn. He was in fear of his life, wasn't he? A powerful king with a powerful army wanted to kill him and they were stronger than he was, but they didn't have David's God. And David's prayers helped to quell his fears. He's come to his God and he's brought his troubles to him and he's cast his cares upon him and so David can wait quietly and expectantly and leave these things in God's hands. And so his fears were stilled. And there's many examples of this elsewhere in the Bible, isn't there? We can think for those who had a real and heartfelt time of prayer, which wonderfully revived them and comforted them when they were feeling low or fearful. We could think maybe of Elijah about to give up his work as a prophet of God and 
see how God spoke to him in the depths of his depression. We can think of Jonah. We can think of Job. We know, don't we, that we have a God who will hear and answer our prayers, who promises to and who will. That's why we should be there on Wednesday as the church gathers for prayer. And that's why it's so encouraging to hear so many of you praying and pouring out the things that are on your hearts to God. Why else can you give thanks to God? Verse 6, no matter who we are. Verse 6 says, this poor man cried out and the Lord heard him. Who? Who was he? he does he have a name? Is he a nobody? But the joy of the gospel is that this poor man was as welcome to the presence of God, to the throne of grace, as any king, as any ruler, as any president. And so any of us may come to God. Was he heard? Verse 6, this poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Whoever you are, you may come to this God. And another reason we can give thanks to God is that he will protect us from verse 7. That he will protect us. And David talks there about God's protection for his people and these angels that encamp around them. Maybe you might think of the story of Elisha in 2 Kings in chapter 6 when the Syrian army were coming and they were struck with blindness and God had seemed to protect Elisha with this ring of fire and chariots and horses. And then David brings this famous invitation that I'm sure you know in verse 8. So with all of those things in mind, all of those reasons to praise God and bless him and all of those reasons to thank God for who he is and what he's done, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. We must taste and see that God is a generous giver. Think for a moment of the goodness of God and all his gifts to us. If you had to write down on a a piece of paper, all of the ways in which God has been good to you, how far would you get? How far would you get if you were to just do it for this past week? Would you run out after three or four lines? Or would you be able to keep writing and keep writing and keep bringing to mind ways in which God has been good to you? 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 3 says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So notice that David doesn't say here, listen and see that the Lord is good. He doesn't say, let my friend over here, let him tell you about how the Lord is good. Both of those things are fine. But David says, you come and see for yourself and taste for yourself that the Lord is good. God's goodness to me is great, but you need to taste this for yourself. God's goodness to your mum or your dad or someone else in your family is fantastic, but you need to taste this goodness for yourself. Come and see, come and taste. And is God any less good today than he was at, say, the start of this lockdown? Has some evil group of enemies robbed God of his power? 
Is he less powerful? Is he less God? Well, David is in no doubt, is he? And neither should we be. We must come and taste and see that the Lord is good. And then David reminds us in verse 9 that we're to fear him. Oh, fear the Lord, all you saints, he says. And we mustn't forget that at the same time as all of these aspects of God's goodness and his character, that God is a great God <clears throat> and he is greatly to be feared. There doesn't seem to be much fear of God today, does there? Out in the world, out there. But David reminds us that God is a powerful God and God is worthy and deserving of our fear. But it's not to be a harsh fear because he goes straight on to remind us that God will provide for his people. All of those who fear the Lord, he says, will have no want. And when people seek the Lord, verse 10 shows us that we'll have spiritual food. We won't lack any good thing. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 of how the Lord says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. You see, David's learned that whatever God has given him is great. And whatever God hasn't given him, he can live without. He can quite happily do without. He will have the grace of God to be content without those things that he does not need. It's like what Paul spoke of when he said he could be content and he had all and he abounded. He was happy with the things that he had and he didn't need the things that he didn't have in Philippians chapter 4. So have we tasted that the Lord is good? Are we content with the things that he's given us rather than chasing after the things of this world? And then in the second part of this psalm, we now come to see aspects of living for God and looking forward with God. So living for God in verses 11 to 14, because once we're content to live, looking to God for what we need, then surely it must shape how we live here and in what we're looking forward to. So in verse 11, we see, firstly, there's a promise from the writer to teach the children. We've a few teachers, haven't we, in the congregation? I'm sure there's a few teachers listening to this and watching today. And David was a powerful king. David had been a soldier, but he didn't think that teaching the children, as he writes, was below him. In fact, we actually see that he sees how important this is. Look at what David expects from them. He says in verse 11, come and listen to me and I will teach you. And look at what it is that he promises to teach them. What's he gonna teach? The fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. David was a soldier, wasn't he? And he, David was a musician, but he doesn't say to the children, come to me and I'll, I'll teach you how to play the harp. I'll teach you how to wield a sword or a spear. But he says, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. That's the best thing you can know. It's better than a GCSE, better than an A-level, even though many of our children are going through those things. Better than a university degree, better than religious rituals. Verse 11, I will teach you 
the fear of the Lord. Can we do that? Can we do that? And then he teaches us something about life. And David supposes in verse 12 that most people are really aiming to be happy. It's what they want out of life. What man is this who desires life and loves many days that he might see good? If you were asked who wants to live a, a long and happy life, the answer you'd probably get back would be, well, who wouldn't? Don't we all? But doesn't this verse look further forward than this world? It's written, isn't it, in Job chapter 14 and verse 1. For man's life on earth consists of few days and those full of trouble. But what is beyond that? Who is thinking about that? I'm sure if you went out there, you could easily rustle up a few people who would say they want to do good to others. And they could probably show you a list of accomplishments. Look at what I've done. I've done this and I've done this and I've done this. Aren't they good things? But how many people are there who would ask, what must we do to inherit eternal life? But there are some, and we can praise God for that. And David describes in verses 13 and 14 a couple of things about living a consistent Christian life. He picks out two things. He could have picked more, but look at the two that he does pick out. He says in verse 13, watch what you say. We must guard our tongues and we must be careful about what we say. We must be sincere and honest and not deceitful. And in watching what we say, I think we can also take it to mean we should watch what we say in the written word with what we write. Social media is such a huge issue these days, isn't it? That we can cause huge offence, we can be unkind, we can be unwise in what we write if we're not careful. So David picks that out as one thing, that the believer must watch. Keep your tongue from evil, he says, and your lips from speaking guile. And then in verse 14, he says we should turn away from evil. We should turn away from evil. We should leave all of our sins behind us. We should resolve to have nothing more to do with them. If you did it before in your former life, it's time to stop. You're one of God's children now, Christian. You're one of Christ's children. And leave that former way of life behind. You can't live like that anymore. And so David is reminding us that it's not just enough to do good things in this world. We have to have a view beyond that. We have to have a view greater than that. And those verses here that we're just reading are repeated in 1 Peter in chapter 3. Why don't you have a read of that later on? So he teaches us some things about living for God in this world. But then he goes on, thirdly, to some aspects about looking forward with God. Looking forward as a believer, walking with God. And we'll look at quickly at verses 15 to the end of the chapter. And so having set out for us God's goodness so clearly, and having reminded his hearers of the importance about being taught about God and about living consistently for him, and in all these ways which should give us cause to praise God, in verses 15 and 16, David puts before us two situations. He puts before us, firstly, what it's like to be a, a believer, the happiness of the believer who's under God's love, 
and God's favour. The eyes of the Lord, it says in verse 15, are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. And then he contrasts in the next verse, in verse 16, what it's like to be an unbeliever in the sight line of God. There you go, in two verses, you've got life and death. You've got good and evil clearly set out before us. Why wouldn't you choose life and live? You see, David knows what it's like to be a non-believer. He knows that it's to be in a dangerous place. In Isaiah chapter 3, we read, Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with them. They're strong words, aren't they, that we see here in verse 16. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Do we actually think, I wonder enough, about what God thinks about sin? Do we actually think enough about that and the seriousness of it and God's reaction to it that must come? Verse 16, he says, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And he goes on to say that he'll cut them off, the remembrance of them from the earth. What a terrible judgment to be under. What a terrible position to be in. But then he goes on in verse 17 to reassure the believer and to give a word to the righteous. And he says, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears and he delivers them out of their troubles. He says to the believer, you're, you're all right. You're under God's special favour and protection because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and he'll direct you, he'll guide you, he'll protect you, he'll keep you, he'll hear you when you cry. What a great position to be in by contrast. He says in verse 18, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. What a great position to be in under God's favour and under the love of God. If you've come to him with your broken heart and with your contrite spirit. Isn't it great to know that we have a God who is looking out for us, is protecting us, is keeping us, is active you parents, when you're out with your children, don't you often have an inbuilt kind of radar that's always looking and checking to see where they are and make sure they haven't gone away, make sure they haven't run away from your care? I remember, not really to my credit, but I remember losing Thomas in Asda once when he was very young. I was in one of the aisles looking at something, I think he was looking at the toys, and I said, stay there, I'm going to get something. When I went, I didn't think it was far, but I went to get something. And of course, when I come back, he's gone. He's not where I left him. And so frantically, I'm running up and down the aisles, up this one, up the next one. Where is he? Asking people, have you seen a child about this big? And suddenly, over the tannoy, there comes an announcement. Would the parents of Thomas Black please come to the reception desk? Well, he was safe because someone else had looked out for him. But none of God's children are ever away from his eye. None of us as God's children will be out of his care, will be removed from his protection. We're sure of an answer of peace to our prayers. Verse 17 reminds us again that the Lord will hear our prayers. Verse 18 reminds us again that the Lord is near to those who come in the right spirit to him. 
Are we those who have no confidence in ourselves, but only confidence in God and in the work of Christ on the cross for us? And you see this psalm closes with a picture of redemption. In verse 22 it says, The Lord redeems the souls of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. How do you come into this position? How do you come to be that person? It is by trusting, isn't it, in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross for us and for our sins. Have you done that? You can. You must. Because this life is very short and eternity is very long, isn't it? And David has shown us in this chapter something of the goodness of God in all of the different works that God has done. He's shown us aspects of God's character. He's shown us what living for God looks like. And he's shown us how we can look forward with God in confidence and without fear.